When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. I do believe that on this day, this is God's word for us, church. Let's pray together. We do pause here, Lord, on this uh, 12th anniversary of Reality Ventura. And as Tim said, we, we don't say, gosh, look at all the ways that Reality Ventura has done this or that. But we say, gosh, look at, look at how God has moved through just another imperfect local church. We give you the praise today. We want to celebrate that. And even as many of us might find ourselves in a, what feels like a personal season that it doesn't seem like reason for celebration, um, we ask that you would remind us of your goodness today. Thank you that you are able to minister to each one of us right in the place that we are at today. So we ask that you would do that. God, I ask that you would anoint me. You would empower me. You minister to your people through me like only you can. Our ears are open to hear what your spirit would say to us today. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Well, as we look around the world, uh, we see a lot of things. But one of the things we see is a lot of pain. And as we look at ourselves, man, there's a lot of pain in there. And as you get older, uh, the, the more pain there is. Some of that pain is brought on by ourselves, right? We make bad decisions, and so we affect uh, ourselves. We inflict pain on us or others because of our sinful decisions. Some of that pain is caused by other sin against us, evil things that are done to us, things that have had a profound negative impact uh, on us, whether that be direct or indirectly. And then there are those things in life that just happen, right? It's not because of anybody's poor choices necessarily. It's just because we live in a fallen world. And so there's going to be things that break. Relationships will deteriorate and bodies will break down and people will get sick and die. Tragedy will strike often for what seems like no good reason at all. But what if there was someone who could actually bring beauty out of all of this pain? What if God could actually bring good even out of evil? Well, Psalm 126 is a proclamation that God can resurrect what is past and can give renewal and life to his people for a hopeful future. Today is indeed Reality Ventura's 12th anniversary, and it's a good time for us to stop and look back and reflect on God's faithfulness to us. But I don't want to just do that as a church today. I, I want to give us some tools so that you as an individual can do that in your own life, especially when you find yourself in the middle of a painful time. 
And when you find yourself in a place of suffering and sorrow, maybe even the kind of sorrow that leads to despair, the question is, what can you do to find your way out? Well, you can do what the psalmist did. Three things I want to look at today. Number one, remember God's faithfulness with gratitude. Number two, sow your tears with humility. And number three, look to the future with expectancy. When you find yourself in the middle of a season of suffering or pain, friends, you must remember God's faithfulness with gratitude. This is what the psalmist is doing here at the beginning of our psalm when he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shout songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. The psalmist is remembering how God delivered ancient Israel specifically from their captivity in Babylon. The Babylonian captivity was a terrible time for Israel, but it was also a necessary time for Israel because while it was a time of struggle, it was also a time of reckoning where they had to come to grips with some of the issues in their own lives. See, as a people and as a nation, they had allowed sin to steadily and slowly creep in. And because sin always pushes us away from God, they had become a people far from God. And so they were in captivity in Babylon. But then while in captivity in Babylon, they came to their senses, recognized how far from God they had become, acknowledged their sin for what it was, repented of their sin, and turned back to God. And God forgave them. And then he delivered them from their captivity in Babylon and brought them back to their homeland. And this redemption was so good and so thorough that it almost seemed too good to be true. The psalmist writes about it when he says, we came back from our captivity and we were like those who dreamed. In other words, man, the way that God did everything that he did to restore us and redeem us was so miraculous, we almost had to pinch ourselves to make sure we weren't sleeping and dreaming. In other words, only God could do something this miraculous and this wonderful. And so it is in our own lives. From time to time, we may experience this kind of goodness where we are like, my goodness, is this real? Like this, this is almost too good to be true. If we really think about it, man, this is how we ought to respond when we think about how God redeemed us. Like, are you kidding Lord, you did that? You saved me in that way? And we are indeed, like Israel was, filled with joy. But things aren't always that joyous, are they? Not for us and not for ancient Israel. In fact, at the writing of this psalm, things were not wonderful for ancient Israel. Because although the psalmist is recalling the glorious time when God had led them out of their captivity... The writer also gives us a clue as to what is happening in his present circumstance. When he says in verse 4 or 5, restore our fortunes, Lord. That means the fortunes have been lost, right? Stolen or wasted. Restore our fortunes. Like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the name given to the southernmost part of Judah. Where in the summertime it got so dry, so parched, that they, it would just wait for the winter rains to come and replenish the stream, breads, the stream beds and bring life again. Literally, the word Negev means dry and parched. 
those who sow with tears. Why is he writing about sowing with tears? Because his people are mourning. His people are hurting. His people are brokenhearted, so much so that they are crying because of their circumstances. When God brought us out of captivity, we were like those who dreamed. Our lives were prosperous. Our souls were alive and our hearts were full. But now, our fortunes are gone, our souls are dry, and our hearts are broken. Israel had repented while in Babylon, and in turn, their souls were refreshed, and their joy had returned. But over time, like all of us have a tendency to do, they slowly slipped away again. And with their backsliding, so went their communion with God. And then so went their vibrance, and so went their joy, until they became parched, just like the Negev. We will have seasons of great spiritual plenty in this life, seasons where our souls are full and we feel like they are full and where we we feel spiritually alive and vibrant and even seasons where life itself just feels like, gosh, this is just good. It just feels good. But when we find ourselves in a season of drought or in a season of suffering, wondering if it will ever be abundant and joyous again, we must do what the psalmist did and remember God's faithfulness with gratitude. How do we do that specifically? Three words. Proclaim, declare, recall. Can you say that with me? Proclaim, declare, recall. Again, proclaim, declare, recall. We must proclaim God's promises. We must declare God's character, and we must recall God's track record. You want to remember God's faithfulness? Proclaim his promises. Declare his character. Remember his track record. This is what the psalmist is doing here. He is looking back on God's faithfulness, proclaiming God's promises, declaring God's character, and recalling God's track record. Church, Has God saved you? Think about how he has redeemed you, what he's done to redeem you, what he has redeemed you from. Has he forgiven you of your sin? That's right, praise God. Has he provided for you just like he said that he would? Maybe not more than you need, but he's given you what you need, right? then his promises are true. Has God been merciful to you, not judging you for your sin as you deserved? Yeah. Has he been loving to you even when you're at your worst? Has he been a comforter to you when you've been alone? Then his character is true. And as we proclaim his promise and declare his character, we are recalling what God has done and who he has been in the past, which reminds us of who he is and what he does in the present and who he will be and what he will do in the future. And when we do this, though, we do not just do it, but we do it with gratitude. 
And we, we see this in the essence of this psalm, man. Listen to this songwriter and the way that he is expressing this. He says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Man, these are the words of someone who was thankful for what God has done. And so we, just, we don't just proclaim the promise and declare his character and recall what he has done, but we allow our hearts to be full of gratitude for it. We say, thank you, God, for it. We don't just say, God, you've been faithful. We say, gosh, God, thank you that you have been faithful. Lord, you've been faithful, so I'm going I'm to praise you for it. We don't just say, yeah, you've been, a, you've been a loving father to me. We say, gosh, God, you've been a loving father to me, and I'm going to thank you for it. I just want to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for being a loving father to me. Tim just uh, shared, you know, that I'll be able to stay on staff part-time. Praise God. I'm very thankful to be able to continue uh, serving our church in some capacity. But I'm also going to be honest. I'm also just thankful to still have a job. Right? Can I just be real about this right now? Like, I'm just thankful to still have a job. And I can talk about it now like it's no big deal. But the truth is, Emily and I had no idea if God would provide the funds for me to stay on staff, even part-time. So we had no real clue what I was going to do about work. I just knew that God was calling me to step over and that God was calling Tim to step in. What we didn't tell you guys was that when we looked at the current finances when we were doing all that, we were like, yeah, there's no room for Dom in here. But it was, I just knew God was doing it, so I was like, all right. So I didn't know what was going to happen, right? I didn't know what was going to happen with my job. And in the middle of that unknowing, our landlord calls us and says, hey, I'm going to sell your house, the house you're living in, by the way. And I don't know if you've tried to find a rental in Ventura County, but it's impossible, okay? There's no home for anybody, And so we had no place to live. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do for work. How are we going to pay our bills? And I was like, goodness, man. I've been here before, and God has been faithful to me. And I'm still wondering if he's going to be faithful this time. Right? And so I would have to go on these long bike rides and do Psalm 126. I would ride down my street, dreadlock dom. All my neighbors think I was crazy because they'd hear me talking out loud to some invisible being. (laughs) And I would just do this, and I would start back at the beginning. I would start at, like, day one of my life. Okay, God, I went into septic shock. I was dying. You provided a way. You saved my life. Okay, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And then when I was three, my parents got divorced and how messy that was. And then, Lord, when I was 11, I was in an abusive situation. And then, God, when I was 16 and I was getting kicked out of school for drugs and I was getting arrested for shoplifting, then you saved me, God. Thank you. And, you know, meanwhile, parents are bringing their kids inside their house. Who's the, who's the crazy guy riding down the street with his dreadlocks? Some hippie is invading our neighborhood, right? And I would just begin to thank God out loud, just praising him. And then, God, you brought me a wife. Gosh, Lord, I really wanted to partner with someone as a wife and in life and in ministry you bought all thank you God for my wife and then you gave us kids and I'm going through and I'm just praising God I'm just thanking him for our kids and then you call us to carp Lord and I didn't have a job I didn't even know how to do anything we had zero money and savings and we didn't have a house to live and by the time we got there we had all of it you gave us a house for free in Carpinteria and then when we had to start paying rent in Carpinteria you gave us the cheapest house in all of Carpinteria we were paying 850 bucks for a two-bedroom house two blocks from the beach 
because God knew we were poor, right? He's like, ah, I'm gonna hook you up. And so I'm just like thanking God. I'm just thanking him for all these things. And then I went off staff and I went to do full-time music. I had no money to do full-time music, but you said do it. And God, you provided. And then we, there was no way we could have bought a house, but then we bought a house. And we were like, okay. And so I'm just thanking God, just crazy, man. And I'm just thanking God. I'm praising him. And as I would declare his character and, and proclaim his promise and recall his faithful track record in my life, faith would begin to fill my heart again. Faith would begin to fill my heart again. Hopeful expectation rises up in our hearts when we look back and we proclaim the fulfilled promise of God. We declare the fulfilled character of God. And we recall his faithful track record. And so when we find ourselves in a season of suffering, we must Remember God's faithfulness. Well, that's cute, Dom. <laughs> Looking back on your life and thanking God for all the things he did back then. When you're under the fount where the glory comes out, that's nice. But what about the season that feels like the Negev? What about right now, dry and withered and parched what about this moment where I can't see God's promise all I see is the pain what do you do then what do you but also part of what you do is number two sow your tears with humility Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Man, you ever want a lesson in God's people being honest with God? Read the Psalms. Something we could learn from the Psalms. I love how honest he is about a situation. I think in many ways we've lost our sense of lament as a people. We have created this idea that pain is to be avoided at all costs. And if it can't be avoided, then we at least are going to act like it's not there. But we could learn something from ancient Israel. Those who sow with tears. The psalmist is not afraid to acknowledge that he and his people are weeping right now. Those who trust in Christ do not have to sorrow to the point of despair because despair is for people who have no hope. And if you are in Christ, then you have hope. However, God's people will sorrow. And when we do, there are a couple of things we need to know. We need to know that just because it's painful for you doesn't mean it's bad for you. Anyone who's ever exercised knows this. Right, you go on a long, hard run, longer and harder than you've ever ran, and your lungs start to burn. They are expanding and contracting further than they ever have, and it hurts. It is painful. But in that moment, you are also increasing your lungs' capacity to hold air. You are increasing your stamina and ultimately your ability to go even further and harder than you ever have. When you wake up the day after a good, hard day in the gym, your muscles are sore, right? It's painful, which means that you did something yesterday. 
test. Anybody who lifts heavy knows this. Like if you're trying to build muscle, you wake up sore and you're like, okay, good. I did, I did my job. There's growth happening. I mean, the pain is a litmus test of something good happening you, happening in you. Just because something hurts you, friends, doesn't automatically mean that it's bad for you. And this is what the Bible tells us actually about suffering. Romans 5. But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. Those are good things. And character, hope, that's a good thing. Pain of suffering does something good in the life of the believer. I have this tattoo on my arm. It goes all the way up to here. It's, I, don't get, I don't get tattoos just for fun, which I'm not, you can go ahead and get tattoos for fun, but it's too much pain for me to do it just for fun. Um, but the reason I sat through like 16 hours of a needle going into my skin was because I needed, I needed to remember, I needed to remember God's faithfulness to me. My, my tattoo is 22 elements of the most profound life-changing lessons that I learned because of the pain of losing our baby boy, Nehemiah. That was the, the worst thing that I had ever gone through, hardest thing I've ever gone through. And also, it has led to more fruitfulness and goodness in my life than anything else in my life, so much so that now I can actually be thankful for it. I'm not thankful that Nehemiah died, but I am thankful for the excruciating pain that it caused because that pain produced things. James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How does someone get to the point where they rejoice, not just in trials, but he's saying because of trials. Trial comes and you're like, thank you, God. What? How do you get to that point? James says that it comes by remembering that the trials are actually creating something good in us. Your present suffering may be painful, but that does not necessarily mean that it is bad. In the same way, our painful circumstances do not change the promises, character, or faithful track record of God. You know, once you get through a hard time and you look back, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, okay. I, I kind of get what was going on there. You see God's hand moving. You see how he showed up. You see how he was faithful, even though it may have really hurt. You see what he did in it, right? It's easy to look back. Your vision is a lot clearer when you get on the other side of it. But how many of you know that when you're in the middle of it, the circumstances can become so overwhelming that it kind of blinds us or at least clouds our vision to be able to see what is really going on and see things for what they really are. And when this happens... We have a tendency then to make a meaning about God based on our impaired vision, which then creates an improper meaning about God. It goes something like this. I can't see God moving right now. Therefore, he must not be moving. 
I can't see how God is working this out for my good. Therefore, God's not working it out for my good. I can't see God's promises playing out in this situation. Therefore, God is not being faithful to his promises. This is a very real thing for many of us. Some of us are there right now. You may even know that something is true about God, but you're having a hard time believing that it's true for you. God, I know you're good. I'm just not sure that you're good to me. God, I know you've been faithful. I just, I, I just don't know if you're going to do it this time. We allow our circumstances to dictate what we believe is or isn't true about God. We allow our circumstances to determine, ah, that's true about God, that's not true about God. But listen to me, if you don't hear anything else I say, hear me say this. You do not interpret God's character based on your circumstances. You interpret your circumstances based on God's character. So when it seems that there is a discrepancy and you can't figure out how God's character fits within your present suffering circumstances, you don't try to morph God into an image in light of your circumstances that makes sense with your circumstances. If God's character doesn't make light to you or make uh, sense to you in light of your present circumstances, then you reinterpret your circumstances until they make sense with God's character. Because God's character is the unchanging thing, right? Somebody just say, I'm not God. Okay, say it like you mean it. I'm not God. That's right. Here's what that means. That means that we have an imperfect ability to look at our situation and perfectly examine and quantify exactly what's happening there. We don't have the ability to do that. You're not God. You just said it. I'm not God. We don't have the ability to do that. We need something more concrete. God says things about himself. He is God. And so when he says something about himself, that's the thing we can bank on. Okay, I can't bank on my ability to interpret my situation. But I can bank on who God says that he is because he's God and he said it. And so that's got to be my starting point, right? That's got to be like, okay, that's the thing. That's the thing I got to go with. That's the thing I got to start with. And then I got to reinterpret everything else around that to line up with that, not the other way around. We try to do it the other way around and our lives get messed up and our faith gets messed up. We got to start with God because his character is true. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now, to be fair, this is easier said than done, right? (laughs) I've been there, man. Trust me. That means that it's going to require a significant amount of faith sometimes. And so it, it needs to be like this. Okay, God, listen, I can't see that you're working right now. I can't see your goodness in this. But you said you're good, so I'm going with that. I can't see how your faithfulness plays out in this, God. I can't see it yet. But I know you're faithful. So I'm going with that. We just sang it earlier, right? Gosh, it's so true. I need to sing this every day. Even when I can't see it, you're moving. Isn't that the truth? 
And sometimes, man, we got to sing it even if we don't fully believe it yet for ourselves. God is working even when we can't see, even when we're in that tense place of waiting and our vision is impaired, God is working even in our waiting, which means that we have to remember that sanctification is a process. It is a process. Christian, from the moment you were saved, God began sanctifying you, conforming you into the image of his son, his perfect, righteous, flawless Son, all the imperfect people, can you just say not perfect? Here's what that means. That means that it's going to be a long process for us to become more and more like Jesus, the perfect one. And the difficult reality to face is that part of that process is pain. God gets no pleasure out of seeing his children suffer. He didn't create sin He didn't create pain. We did that. But God, in his infinite mercy and love, uses pain, even the worst stuff in life, to bring good to us and to bring glory to his name. Now, I do believe that there are situations where God wants to get us out of that Immediately, He doesn't want us to sit in it. He's not trying to sanctify us using that thing. When someone is sinning against you and you are, you are uh, in danger, believer, you need to know God wants you to get you out of it immediately. When you are addicted to, to sin, God wants to break that bondage. When you're suffering under the deep oppression of the enemy, God wants to deliver that from you immediately. He's not like, hey, wait, because this is a process. Okay? But those things aside, there are Many, many times, maybe most of the time, and the time that we see here in the Psalms, when God is, is, is working within that waiting. That's the kind of situation we see here. So often we find ourselves in where God has wanted to do something, produce something, and he's going to let us stay in there for a little bit while he's doing the good thing. And he does do a good thing. Listen, God can even take things orchestrated by Satan himself. And turn them for good. What the enemy meant for evil, God can turn for good. He can take the effects of sin and make glorious, beautiful things out of it. And I think that he makes the most beautiful things out of actually the worst situations. This makes sense to me when, even when we look at nature because there's no diamond without the heavy pressure. There's no refined gold without the hot fire. There's no beautiful spring without the winter, and there is no glory without pain. Which means that maybe we ought to change the way that we think about suffering. There is often this false expectation that God is is always going to deliver us. He's always wanting to just like deliver us immediately from our present circumstances or keep us from them altogether. And so we have a misunderstanding when we come into it, like we're surprised. We're like, oh my gosh, God, where are you? I'm in a storm again. As if God promised that we weren't going to get in the storm. God never promised you wouldn't be in the storm. God promised to be with you when you were in the storm. God never promised to, that you'd have no trouble. Here's what Jesus promised. He said, I promise you, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. There's his promise. There's his promise. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. 
Here's what that means. You're going to have trouble. But what I'm not promising you won't have trouble. Here's what I'm promising you. I'm promising that when you have trouble, you will not be overcome by the trouble because I have overcome the world and you are in me. That is the promise. Friends, we have... We all uh, like being in those seasons of ease and blessing. But while we wait for that, we must remember that God is working in the waiting, which means that it may not always be God's will to expedite your season of suffering and deliver you immediately because there is beautiful work to be done while you are waiting. God is bringing glory, but there is a process in the glory. Which means that maybe the question we need to ask is not, God, can you get me out of this? But, God, what do you want me to get out of this? Because it does seem to be part of his loving plan to use all the pain that this world is going to bring us to produce good in us. Now, will it hurt? Yeah. Are you going to cry? Probably. But when you shed those tears, you can actually do so remembering God's faithfulness, his promises, and his character. And that is what allows you to sorrow without despairing. You may be in a season of suffering right now, but when you remember God's past faithfulness, then your season of sorrow can actually become a season of sowing. And sowing is always intended to lead to reaping, which means that you can now, number three, look to the future with expectation. For those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. God's past track record is our future assurance. The psalmist could declare this promise of the future because he knew what God had done in the past. The reason we must remember God's promises, his character, and his track record when we are in the middle of a season of sorrow is it because it reminds us of who God is and what he has done, which assures us that he will be the same and do the same in the future, which allows us to look forward with hopeful expectation. Psalm 126 was written because ancient Israel had a practice of looking back when they found themselves in extraordinary trials. We get in a trial and we're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Israel was like, I know what's going to happen because I look back and I'm like, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If that's who he was then, then that's who he's going to be now. It was that idea, right? It was like, God's done this and that, therefore he will do thus and so. And this is the same argument that Paul uses in the New Testament to inspire Christian hope. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Listen, if God loved you so much that he would send his son to save you, then why would you ever think that God's not going to give you what you need when you need it? If he was faithful then, why would he not be faithful now and in the future? His past track record is our future assurance. So let me encourage you today.
if you are in a season of suffering, know that your season of suffering can be a season of sowing if you will but remember God's faithfulness. And just like this promise was a promise for ancient Israel, it is a promise for you. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. I love how explicit this language is. It does not say those who sow with tears may reap with songs of joy. It says those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Can we just read this together? Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Again, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in your life. I can't tell you what's going to happen next week or next month or next year. I don't know. But I do know this. There is coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. Jesus will return and he will make a new heaven and a new earth and all of the effects of this fallen planet will be eradicated and sin will be gone and the work of the enemy will be done. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no more division. There will be no more broken relationships. There will be no more tension. There will be no more broken bodies. There will be no sickness and there will be no more death. I can't tell you What's happening tomorrow? But I do know there's coming a day when every wrong will be righted and Jesus will come in justice and truth and will rule and reign and you will be with him at at his right hand, Christian. That's what I know is coming. I don't know what's going to happen next week, but I do know that there is coming a day when all things will be made right. And so there may be weeping in this night, but friends, joy is coming in the morning. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the hopeful expectation that we can have because of you. And we ask God today that that is indeed where our hope would lie. I want to pray now for the person who is discouraged and maybe even despairing. And I want to ask that you would lift up their eyes, that they might see you again, that they might remember who you are and what you've done. Would you bring us back to the simplicity of, wow, God, you love me enough to save me? Would you help us to just even start there today? Would you allow gratitude and thanksgiving to fill our hearts? To realign our vision, to correct our vision of you. If you are finding yourself in in need of hope today, why don't you just put out your hands in front of you as if you were receiving something from God. You don't need to say anything out loud, but just agree with me in your heart. 
God, I don't want to find my hope in the things of the world. I don't want to find my hope in what may or may not happen in this life tomorrow. I want to find my hope, hope in you and what I know is going to be true about you. You're the one thing I can bank on, Lord. And so I want to turn my eyes to you right now. Would you help me? I also just repent of things that I've allowed to become uh, idols, really, in my life, where I'm, I'm looking at them for my peace and my joy, looking for a situation to change. I, I repent of that idolatry. I turn back to you, God. I look to you. You're the Lord. We're going to enter into our, uh, the second set of worship right now, and we create this time as a time of response, and I, please don't get up, please don't get on your phone, you don't need to leave, if you have an appointment, text them, cancel it, you need to be here right now, you need to respond to the Lord, that's why we create this time. And I want to encourage you to sing as these songs are sung. Maybe your MO is to come in here in a time like this, and when you're not feeling it, you're like, dude, I'm not going to sing. But I want to encourage you to sing, even if you're not feeling it. After our baby Nehemiah died, Emily was in the hardest place where she was like, I don't even, I don't even know if I can trust God again. She was at this conference, and they were singing that song, You Are Good, You Are Good. She's listening to everybody sing it, and she's like, this is dumb, dude. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to sing this. She felt like the Holy Spirit said to her, just sing it. I know you're having a hard time believing it, but you know somewhere deep down that it's true, so just sing it. So she was like, with her eyes rolled, kind of just like, you are good, you are good. And as she sang it, her heart began to remember that it was true. And pretty soon her emotions started catching up with that truth. It was a turning point in that deep, deep season of pain and doubt with the Lord. I want to encourage you today to sing even if you don't feel it. It's true. We're singing truth. The lyrics in these songs are true. And so you can sing them. And as you do, I believe your, your emotions will catch up with that truth. This is why we've provided this space on the carpet so that we can take postures that kind of line up with that response where it's like, God, I'm going to get on my knees right now. I'm going to get on my face right now and put myself in a place of humble surrender before you and just say, God, I need your help. I'm having a hard time believing this. And so I'm going to sow tears. But I'm going to sow them knowing that there's a season of reaping coming. I'm going to sow them because I remember your faithfulness. I'm, going to, I'm not just going to see these tears just falling on deaf ground. I'm going to see them as sowing seed for what's coming in the future because I can remember your faithfulness. I know you're going to be faithful. I'm going to get on my knees right now. I'm going to surrender. That's why these carpets are here. That's why the communion is here because it's like, gosh, God, I don't, I don't know if I see your love right now. But when I take that bread and I take that cup, I remember the cross. And oh, my goodness, there's no greater love than what you did on the cross. And so I'm going to take communion and I'm going to remember. This is why the prayer team is here, so that they can help bring you to the throne of grace. You might not even have the words. Let them have the words on your behalf. I want to encourage you to step out in faith. There is a, a step of faith when you open your mouth and sing. 
There's a step of faith when you change your physical posture and get on your knees. There's a step of faith when you walk up and you say, God, I'm going to remember what you did for me on the cross by taking communion. And there's a step of faith when you go and say, hey, will you pray for me? And then when we take steps of faith like that, sometimes the thing is broken, whatever that thing is. Sometimes the depression is broken. The bondage is broken. I want to encourage you to take a step of faith, whatever it may be right now as we respond.